are living your story right now in this moment. You know, no two stories are alike. We are all unique. We all have a different lens through which we see the world. We all have something to contribute, to share, to be. That uniqueness takes courage. It's not easy to stand in your truth. It's not easy to let yourself be vulnerable, to be really seen, to be really heard. So many of us hide. So many of us stay hidden. So many of us make the choice to step forward, to own who we are, to own our stories, to share our voice. The tide is turning. We're moving into a space of deeper vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and love. We're moving closer to greater self-love, self-acceptance, honesty, and empowerment. To get there, to get to that space, means we have to authentically share who we are. It means we have to authentically show up as our true selves. The magic is in sharing who you are. The magic is in sharing your story. That's where this series comes in. Own your voice. Love yourself. Stay true to your story. Dive deep into your vulnerability. Shine in your authenticity. Once you do, there's no stopping you. Stay honest. Stay brave. Stay true to who you are. Welcome to Seek the Joy Podcast, the power of storytelling. Hey, you guys, I'm Gia Duke, and I am so excited to be here. If you were, we were together in person and you were standing in front of me, I'd probably give you a hug because I am a super hugger. Uh, with your permission, of course. And then I might ask you something like, what drives you? What inspires you? And what makes you feel alive? Those are some of my favorite questions. And most importantly, I'd ask you, what kind of difference do you want to make in the world? And is there any way I can help you? So in a nutshell, what I do, the easiest way to sum it up is to say, I help people who want to help people. Is that you? I'm also driven to inspire people to think about how we're all connected and to remind them that most of us, I think, truly want the same things, to love and be loved and to feel like we matter. Compassion, love, and empathy have always been my driver. Heart first, that's how I roll. I've always loved being around different kinds of people and hanging in different crowds. And I often imagine what it might feel like to stand in someone's shoes. And if they're not doing okay, it stays with me. I know in my heart that we're not meant to be alone and that we all need each other. If I had to put a title on what I do, you could call me an author, a humanitarian, or a life coach. I'm also a nonprofit founder, a speaker, and a foster youth and animal rescue advocate. Oh, and I'm a night owl. Any night owls here? And a rain lover. Yes, I love the rain. And I'm a super giggler. I love to laugh and be silly. I also wrote a help help book. Did you catch that? It's called Get Your Heart On, the how-to guide for people who want to make a difference. A handbook for helpers. 
And I'm super excited because I just kicked off my very own show, my podcast, with the same name as the book, Get Your Heart On. And I would love for you to come over and push play and tune in and just join the community. The show is all about, and the book and my work is all about caring and helping and connecting. It's about creating hope, giving back and spreading love. It's about the hard stuff, the sticky stuff, the good stuff and the real. It's about kindness on purpose and leaving a legacy. It's about living a life that matters. And if I had only one wish for my show, it would be that you would leave each episode feeling energized to get out there and put that big heart of yours into action. So like I said, come over, push play, say hello, or dive into my book and let me know how you want to get your heart on in the world. So I grew up in Bremerton, Washington, which is across the water from Seattle. I'm pretty much a Pacific Northwest girl at heart. And I've spent many years also in the mountains in Truckee, California by Lake Tahoe. But currently I live in the heart of San Francisco and I love the city and how the energy of the city and how I feel so alive and creative here. And when I'm not at home, you might find me on a road trip with my husband, Justin, our son, Tobin, and our rescue pup, Blaze, in our VW van whenever we can get away. Um, lovingly, his name is Rustle. <laughs> so beyond the titles, who am I and how the heck did I get here? So it's pretty much been the story of my life. So I'm going to do my best to sum it up for you. There have been many times when I've wanted to walk away from my difference-making dreams and just quit because it hurt honestly too much. I've spent many sleepless nights and years actually thinking about all of the pain in the world. I'd imagine all the people or animals who were sick, struggling, or hanging on with hope or grasping for just one small break. I'd close my eyes and instead of dreaming, I'd hear their voices or see their faces in my mind telling me to not give up or walk away. Then the tears would start to roll down my cheeks because I had no idea what to do or how to even begin. And that not knowing piece, man, that was so hard. And at the time, I didn't know anyone that felt like me. I even wrote letters to Oprah, hoping she could help me out or give me a Harpo hookup. Please, Oprah, just tell me what to do. Then I spent a large portion of my life running around from cause to cause, doing whatever I could to help, to advocate, raise funds, spread the word, cheer on, or hold hands. I became the rescue girl, but there were way too many causes that needed support and only one me. I felt like I couldn't help fast enough. And no matter what I did, there was always so much more work to be done. I wouldn't change a thing, but as some of you might've guessed, over time, I started to feel run down, exhausted, and hopeless. There was definitely no light at the end of the tunnel, and it was a long, lonely ride. I finally decided that the best way I could make a difference was to focus my energy on the give back work that I was most passionate about at the time. For me, that meant advocating for foster youth, helping rescue animals, and raising money and contributing my time to support causes that spoke to me. In 2006, I started to find out more about the foster care system, which eventually led to creating Remix, a creative arts and wilderness retreat nonprofit for foster kids. I had no experience, no degree in this area, and honestly, no idea what I was doing. But what I did have was so much heart and passion and tons of patience and determination to make it happen and to figure it out. 
And in 2010, we launched a retreat. It was one of the most amazing days. And as exciting as it was, I'd also been running myself down and was on the edge of burnout trying to play, quote unquote, all the roles. I'm sure some of you can relate. I was a stay at home slash working slash volunteering mom. I had a little boy, three dogs, and at times I was a single mom when my husband was at work as a firefighter. I was also the founder, the director, the creator, the grant writer, the fundraiser, all the jobs that go with running a nonprofit. You name it, I did it. I was constantly torn, often feeling guilty and was struggling to stay present and not hit a wall at the same time. And I just knew that I couldn't keep this up. So I got a tattoo, (laughs) Bet you didn't see that coming. It was a permanent self-care reminder, essentially. I chose the word carefully. It says matter. To me, that meant making a difference in the world, to matter in my life and in the lives of others, and to remind myself to matter or be present with whoever I'm with or whatever I'm working on. I put it on the top of my wrist facing me so I could see it all the time to remind me of what matters most to just be here now in this moment. Eventually, I started to help other people to pinpoint a cause and get started with their heart work. People who also wanted to make a difference in their own way, but skip the part about burnout and struggle, which is why I eventually wrote the book. And now I'm starting the podcast with the same name to help more people who want to help people. And I'm happy to say, I no longer feel like the solo rescue girl because I learned I don't have to keep moving forward all on my own, right? I finally figured out we can do it together and then make an even bigger impact in the world. And that feels amazing. One thing I've learned about myself from sharing my story is that unfortunately, sacrificing one's health in service of a cause is a common narrative, especially with big hearted mission driven people. Not a surprise, right? We're often energetic and optimistic and so full of passion when we start out, then it's likely that either our excessive workload or the expectation to do more with less and intense emotional labor can burn us out, right? And it can lead to what I call compassion exhaustion. While burnout happens from running ourselves down from daily stress, compassion exhaustion happens when your deep sympathy for another who is struggling and your desire to do something to alleviate it takes over and you start to feel run down. And it becomes a problem when we think that no matter what we do, it's never enough. I have a whole section in my book about taking care of ourselves while taking care of others, but I wanted to offer a few tips right now that can hopefully help you. So to avoid burnout, one of the first steps is to understand the difference between helping versus rescuing. So here we go. To help someone, the definition by definition is the action of helping someone to do something, to assist them, to make it easier. Examples of that are teach, can advocate, empower, speak up, lend a hand. People that might do this are teachers, mentors, coaches, tutors, chaplains, counselors, therapists, social workers, etc. To rescue something, someone, by definition, is to save them from a dangerous or distressing situation. Okay, examples of that are disaster aid relief workers, ER doctors and nurses, firefighters, police officers, anyone in the armed services. So if you find yourself starting to feel drained or uninspired or like you're barely hanging on by a thread, take notice, then ask yourself, what role am I playing right now or have I taken on? Am I being a helper or am I 
acting like a rescuer. If that's the case, then it's time to flip your mindset and remind yourself, instead of rescuing, you can help. So here's the difference between the rescue mindset and the helping mindset. Instead of enabling, I can assist. Instead of preaching, I can advocate. Instead of lecturing, I can listen. Telling, I can ask questions. Doing it for them, I can pitch in or refer out or empower. I hope you see the difference. Once you start to shift your thinking, you'll find that you have more energy, your passion will eventually come back, and you will be able to make an even bigger impact with your hard work. Keep an eye out, notice the signs, then step in as needed. And the one thing I keep reminding myself as I do my heart work, and I want to remind you right now, is that I'm not alone. You are not alone. There are more people that care. We care together, and we can do this work together. And that is so relieving and takes a huge load off. So what is my biggest dream? For me, it's honestly for everyone in the world to feel like they matter and to have someone that believes in them. And for all that rescue animals to have a forever home and more love, more love, more love. If I could leave you with one final thought or one call to action to get your heart on right now to make a difference in someone's life in this moment, it's this. Believe in someone. We all need someone to believe in our ideas, our hearts, and who we are without having to change anything about us. And sometimes we just need to know that someone believes in us when we find it hard to believe in ourselves. Thank you so much for listening to Pieces of My Story. It's a true honor and so much love and gratitude to Sydney for inviting me to be a part of this amazing series. Our stories are so powerful. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I love that African proverb. Please come over, say hello, say hi, introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you, connect with you, and see how we can help each other to make a bigger impact in the world in our own way. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there. My name is Dr. Lindsay Wisner, and this is my story. I love that this is called the power of storytelling because I personally have always loved the power of words. I loved learning new words and um, the sound of words in my mouth and in my head. I think I liked words more than people for quite a while. Words were more dependable and predictable. I remember in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, my best friend was the girl who would sit next to me at lunch and recess, and we would read. It's called parallel play in psychology. It's totally not age-appropriate for a fourth, fifth, or sixth grader. And yet, this was what I enjoyed. Her name was Jennifer, Jennifer Go. I have no idea where she is today, but she and I were able to uh, make our parents feel better about their kind of odd book-obsessed children by planning playdates where we would just go to one of our houses and read together. I loved it. I loved trying to guess what would happen and understand the characters and put myself in someone else's shoes. It got me out of my own head and my own home. I hated choose-your-own-ending books. I I know they're such a great idea, and now as a parent, as a shrink... I feel like it's, um, it's great for creativity and I want to encourage it, but at the time, oh, there was nothing more annoying 
than a choose your own ending. I wanted hard concrete facts. My home, despite the fact that on paper it was pretty near perfect or at least perfectly nuclear, lacked a fine lacked a fine line between truth and fiction. There was always an adult that was twisting and turning something, some story or some tale or some scenario that I had witnessed into something that was different. It was more flattering for them, less flattering for me, or me and my brother, as the case may be. So books were important because there was a beginning, a middle, and an end. And Choose Your Own Adventure was just like, here, here's an opportunity for someone else to tell you what happens when you know that wasn't what happened. I think that's why I've always wanted to be a writer, the entirely impractical kind of writer, not like a reporter, you know, like Clark Kent, Lois Lane, no. Because at least then you can say, well, there's a structure, there's a strategy, there's an entry point to achieving this goal. But that wasn't the kind of writer I wanted to be. I wanted to tell my own stories. I wanted to tell stories that people would believe. Fiction stories, but fiction stories that you could get lost in the same way I got lost in Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein and Judy Bloom and all those other people that grew up in my ear. While in college, I also fell in love with psychology because it was sort of that secret map that suddenly helped me to understand why all of the characters in my books did what they did. It was, a, it was a secret treasure map where things made more sense than they had before. When I graduated from college, I thought perhaps this was the time for me to finally become a real writer. In college, uh, I went to Georgetown University and I had a, a column, my own column, entertainment section that came out twice a week. And when I convinced them to give it to me, I said I wanted to write about stuff. Yep, the person who loves words simply said stuff. Because there was lots of stuff, and I wasn't sure which would be more important on which week. And I don't know why they gave it to me, but they did. I have to think about that. I'm sure someone somewhere knows why. But yeah, I got my own column, and I got to write about stuff, and I thought these clippings would be enough to possibly earn me a spot on some magazine or newspaper. There were so many of them at the time. By the time I walked across the stage to graduate from college, I had 64 rejection letters taped to my bedroom door. Every magazine, every newspaper, any area of the country you could think of. I was willing to go. There was nothing holding me back. Except I wasn't qualified, apparently. So... Uh, thankfully, a late night conversation at a local bar one night with a friend of a friend led me to a position that was open at a major magazine. And as a recent college graduate with a double major and a fairly impressive GPA, I took a job called Fax Girl or Fax Assistant, where I wasn't required to have a GRE. Never mind a high school diploma. And why would anyone with a college diploma ever want to work in this position? It was kind of a crap position. 
there was a fax machine, possibly two, and it was my job to change the toner and bring the faxes around to the real reporters. It was 1999. We had email. We had cell phones. We had fax machines, but frankly, anything that was that important was not going to come in on the fax machines. So a lot of what I did was get some good exercise. I wish we had the Fitbit then, actually. I would have definitely got my steps in. But I walked around and gave out faxes about Beanie Babies and car auctions and whatever else. It was sort of like being in part of the spam department at, at AOL or Gmail. It was... Um, it was a thankless job, but I was going to do it just in case. There were some kind reporters that, you know, took pity on me and let me help them out with some reporting or let me tag along on an interview, you know, just to see if this was what was going to be right for me. I might have stayed longer, except for the fact that one day I happened to be using the bathroom for all of three seconds. And they called my name over the loudspeaker three times, which A, kudos to them for actually knowing my name. But B, when I hurried back to the office to see what the emergency was, it was another fax about Beanie Babies. I was only 21, but I knew there had to be something better out there than having to stop mid-P for a Beanie Baby fax. Fortunately... I was still close with a professor from Georgetown, a psychology professor, and he told me about an opening that had just come up at the National Institute of Health doing uh, research in child and family development. I spent two years there with a bunch of similar-minded, mostly women, where we were all just gaining experience in between graduates or in between undergrad and heading off to graduate school to pursue whatever advanced degree we were going to. I actually used the time working at NIH in part to write my first full-length book. So by the time I started graduate school, I was also attempting to find an agent or a publishing house to do something with this book. And to my credit, I actually was had had several conversations with two or three agencies, but they were newer and less established. And my second day of graduate school was 9-11, the 9-11. And so within a few months, it became apparent that no one would be publishing a book from a completely unknown 23-year-old, soon-to-be psychologist in light of the turn of the economy. So I went to graduate school. I met my husband. I started working. I had kids. I enjoyed my job. I was working with a lot of anxious adults. And then in December of 2013, my mother-in-law, who was our closest relative and biggest support, uh, dropped dead unexpectedly. Within six weeks, we found out that uh, my cat of 14 years had cancer and she died within a week of my mother-in-law. 
my childhood best friend fell into a coma of unknown causes, never woke up. My best friend moved out of the country. A loved one went to prison indefinitely. And my two and a half year old daughter fell off the monkey bars and fractured and dislocated her humerus, which required major surgery. I can honestly say for the first time in my life, first time as an adult, I was literally clinically depressed. Yes, a depressed psychologist with two young kids, a grieving husband, and the ghost of a dead cat haunting my house. So I took to writing. I would wake up early in the morning and write and write and write. And at first it started with different writing contests because it made me feel like I was accomplishing something. And then I began working on a novel. And then one day my loved one in prison asked me to order her a copy of, well, asked me to order her subscription of Cosmopolitan magazine. And I did. And for five extra dollars, I got my own subscription, which was fine. I, I was just putting one foot in front of the other as fast as I could to keep myself going. I happened to come across in the Cosmo magazine that I only had in my hands by chance that they were holding their first ever fiction contest. Well, why not? I had been applying to every other contest. And frankly, I had a book that was 90% done. I could just send in an excerpt, see what happened. This was sort of my version of, of mania, sort of a word mania type thing. I entered the Cosmo contest and I won. As a result of this, I found a fiction agent who's amazing. Through the Twitterverse, I met the woman who is now my co-author on the upcoming book, 10 Steps to Finding Happy. I met new people, gained new confidence and started seeing a different, different amount of patients, different age, different specialties, because something about that one win after so many losses kind of kicked me into gear. It made me a lot bolder and braver. I started my podcast, Neurotic Nourishment, about six months ago, because one of my favorite people and fondest friends, she and I were talking, and Someone joked that we should start a podcast, and so we did. Eventually, the podcast became just mine, but it, it was a happenstance. I just stumbled upon it the same way I did most other things in my life. I also, in the last few years, have fallen into a new niche of working with suicidal teens. Why? Well, I don't overreact to their thoughts. I understand there's a difference between thoughts and feelings and actions. It took me a while to get beyond the anxious reaction and to simply wait and see what people are going to do versus what they're going to say. Because people can say anything and it's not necessarily the truth. I learned that when I was a kid. So now I've been telling my story a lot and it's been kind of freeing because I was forced to keep silent about so many things for so long. So what have I learned about myself from telling my story? Well, unfortunately, the path is so much clearer and cleaner in retrospect, rather than when you're trying to figure it out when you're in that muck. And had I known it would all work out this way, 
I guess it kind of scares me that I might've done something to mess that up because I think I had to go through the lows to get to the highs. And I don't know if I would have enjoyed the ride had I known how it ended, but there is a strength in being able to look back and know that going forward, it's okay not to always know the answer and not to know the ending and to admit when I need help. I think my biggest dream right now, well, is to raise strong, happy, healthy, brave children. I'm going to make mistakes as a parent, but I want to make different ones than my parents because I think that's the best any of us can hope for. Just make different mistakes. Because the ones you do make, hopefully you couldn't have avoided. And besides raising happy, healthy kids, I would really like to spread awareness about the stigma of mental health and how when we continue to shame people or to hide mental health or to silence those who are suffering, we're making it worse. One of the things that makes me good at working with a suicidal population of teenagers is that I don't judge them before I know the whole story. And I think too often, especially teenagers, are told to fit in a certain box so that they aren't shunned or shamed or judged or isolated. But really, when we tell people that their pain and their feelings and what goes on inside their family has to be kept a secret, we're further shaming them. We're further silencing them. We're telling them it's not okay to tell the truth and that they have to pretend to be something that they're not. And to someone suffering from severe anxiety or debilitating depression, that's adding one more thing onto their backs than what was already there. So yeah, my biggest dream is to use this podcast and my upcoming book and every other platform I am given to try to spread awareness about mental health and the need to destigmatize it and to let people talk about not feeling okay. This is my story and I hope my story helps someone else's story. Thanks for listening. This is Seek the Joy podcast, the power of storytelling. Join us, share your story. For more information and to get involved, visit seekthejoypodcast.com. This series airs the third week of every month. And make sure to join us for Seek the Joy Tuesday. Until then, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for being here. And thank you for listening. Thank you.